The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. <laughs> Welcome back, my friends. Hey, fourth time's a charm. <laughs> if I was doing a video of uh, behind the scenes today, you'd see that this is the fourth time I've tried recording this. I just, I keep messing things up, but anyway... Welcome to episode 115 of the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. I am your host, Jason E. Meiske, here to take you on a journey to find your next favorite book. I invite you to check out the backlist for more than 100 episodes of incredible authors reading a sample chapter from one of their books. There are several that you may not know, but I guarantee you there's also some authors in there you do know but all of them are wonderful. They're all incredible. And it's non-genre specific, meaning you're going to find every genre in the backlist. So if you are into thrillers, you're going to find them. If you're into romance, you're going to find it. The weird, the wacky, some westerns, science fiction. You know, the list goes on and on. When I say every genre, it's there. So check out that backlist. And when you find an episode that you do like, a, a book, an author that you're interested in, make sure you share that with some friends. So that way they can check it out as well. I want to invite you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. You can just find us there at Sample Chapter Podcast on each of those platforms. The YouTube is really cool. That's been really catching on here lately. Uh, people checking out episodes because you can see the book cover while the episode plays in the background. And so that's been a lot of fun. I'm really enjoying the YouTube community, getting some nice comments on there lately. But of course, if you ever want to reach out to me, you can do so at samplechapterpodcast at gmail.com. Another incredible resource I want you to make sure to check out is our sponsors and podcast networks that we're part of, starting with Scrivener. Uh, Scrivener Writing Software, they've been with us for over a year now, and I just, I love this software. It's no secret at all. I, you know, I started using them a few years back, just to try it out. A friend of mine kept telling me and kept telling me and kept telling me how great it was. I finally tried it out and oh my gosh, I love Scrivener. I love everything it's capable of doing. I know you're going to love it too. Hey, check out this commercial to find out how you can save 20%. Jason here. Hey, I wanted to take a moment and tell you about my favorite writing tool, Scrivener. Now, I know you've heard about Scrivener because their writing software has been embraced by hundreds of thousands of other writers like you and I, from the novice to best-selling novelists. The reason we all use it is because of Scrivener's core concept to bring all the writing tools you use together in a single application. And with tools like automatic backup, character maps, project goals, and let's not forget that amazing corkboard, you can see why I use Scrivener every day. As a bonus for Sample Chapter Podcast listeners, use code CHAPTER for 20% off your desktop version. Scrivener Writing Software, built by writers for writers. Yes, yes, thank you so much to Scrivener. Uh, they are incredible, and we're going to be extending that offer to save 20% through June at the very least. I'm, I'm hoping we'll be able to come up with another deal, and uh, they'll stick with us for uh, maybe the rest of the year, or who knows what we've got in the future. But at the very least, if you're listening to this right now in April of 2020, 
you've still got until June of 2020, the end of it, to use that coupon. So check it out. I also want to thank the number one self-storage facility in the Warrensburg area, U-Store-All. They have been my partner for, well, since the very beginning. If you are interested in self-storage, whether that's regular or climate control, look no further than U-Store-All. They have two facilities, fully fenced in, gated with your own private gate code, more than 60 cameras recording 24 hours a day, and they run both facilities off of solar power. So it's a very clean and green facility. Check them out online at ustoral.net. That is the letter U-S-T-O-R-A-L-L dot net. Joey Mills and the gang over at Pop Goes the Culture Network. Those guys are incredible. They've been putting on some wonderful shows uh, here lately on their flagship show, Pop Goes the Culture Podcast. They've been interviewing competitors from the lego show on tv if, uh, if you've watched any of that that's been a lot of fun and they're still trucking along don't forget to click the link in the show notes for popgoesculture.com so that way you can find out about their flagship show and all the other shows pop culture related at that network and last but not least project entertainment network you heard their banner at the very beginning of this show you hear another one at the very end and coming up you're going to hear about one of the other incredible shows on the network that has more than 25 podcasts within the network. They're growing and growing like crazy here lately. It's been, uh, I'm just thrilled to death to be a part of this network, and I, I just love it. Just about anything you want to listen to is available there, just like this show. Hi, I'm John Baldisberger, host of Madness Heart Radio. Join me each week as I discuss writing, living, life, and horror with some of the coolest people in the industry. Talk to writers, directors, actors, and really anyone at all that's involved in scaring people's pants off. Can't wait for you to join us, but until then, stay safe, but stay scared. Alright, thank you again to Project Entertainment Network and their 25 plus shows that are available on there. So click the link in the show notes so you can find out more about all of those. And hey, don't forget to also click on the merchandise. Most of the shows in there have merchandise, t-shirts, mugs, other stuff in there for sale. This show, Sample Chapter Podcast, is now among them that do have some merchandise for sale. So if you're interested in a Sample Chapter Podcast coffee mug or t-shirt or something like that, it is in there. Uh, here, once I get a few more things put up, I'll make sure and be sharing that myself. Think maybe I'll do something for our guest authors. You know, every time somebody comes on, I'll send them a t-shirt or something saying, I read on the Sample Chapter podcast. <laughs> that would be kind of silly, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, our guest author this week, you know, he might be a first-time author, but he's no stranger to storytelling as a film class professor. M.L. Winitsky is our guest here to speak and read from his alternate history magic realism novel, A Fly on the Wall. And let me tell you, oh my gosh, this book, it just came out last week on the 16th of April. So just a few days ago. But this book, it, it's already been likened to Philip K. Dick's Man in the High Castle. Uh, some really high praise. A lot of people are loving on this book. And just getting the chance to sit down with Mr. Winitsky and hear about, you know, we're, we're going to discuss his inspirations for the book, 
all about his brilliant, as he describes it, his brilliant but ignorant character. And, and what does that mean? I love talking to him, and he's quite the eloquent speaker. But we're also going to hear about his writing process, which goes along the lines of being a spy on the outside, looking in uh, when it comes to being a writer. So many wonderful things. You are really in for a treat. So stay tuned. We're going to get over to that. Well, you know, I guess uh, I've already done all the ads. So <laughs> let's just get on over to our interview with M.L. Winitsky right now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Sample Chapter Podcast. Oh my goodness, this week we have such an incredible episode for you and an interview that I cannot wait to dive into. I have been looking forward to this for some time. We are having a sit-down with alternate history author M.L. Winitsky. Mr. Winitsky is a former university professor, historian, consultant, and researcher for television living in Southern California. His lifelong academically informed fascination with alternate history at last led to writing A Fly on the Wall, his first in a three-volume magic realism epic. Mr. Winitsky, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Jason. Given the current climate that we're in, it would be prudent for me to first ask, how are you doing and are you well? Oh, I, I am. Uh, fortunately, uh, writing is very sedentary and I work at home and uh, seldom venture out. Every now and then I go to the store and it seems like uh, an episode of Andromeda strain. Uh, I, just a sea of masks and people uh, spraying you. I, uh, I, which means I don't go out very, very often. Luckily, I don't have to. Uh, my wife is working at home uh, after working for 30 years in an office. So for her, it's a big adjustment. For me, it's nothing. I, I just feel for the people who have to go out and, and minister to, to the ones who are in trouble. Oh, goodness, yes. Yeah, I couldn't imagine that. I, I've complained a little bit, as you've seen through emails, because uh, I'm having to work a lot more than usual. I was kind of, when this first thought came up, I was looking at the server lining thinking, oh, great, I'll have some time at home to write and talk to more authors. But instead, I've been working much more, but not in that aspect. Uh, where I'm doing anything near like uh, what the people at the hospitals are are doing or, or even the uh, uh, authorities for that matter and everything they're having to do extra. Right. Uh, the the word heroism is taking on more and more meaning as we go. Yes. They're, they're, they're amazing. Uh, I mean, this will rank with 9-11. Yeah, it, it really is. It does remind me a lot of that. So, Arce, you were a... Uh, a former university professor and historian, is this where your love of or your interest in writing came from? Only in writing nonfiction. I, my love of fiction just came from reading. I hadn't even generated the intention of, of doing fiction until I saw more and more films. I'm also, I also taught film, uh, not the making of it, but the viewing of it. Mm. And... Um, what generated my interest in this particular subject was having seen uh, Remains of the Day, uh, which I found uh, to be a horror film in a sense. Um, no one else would, would accuse it of that, but I do. Uh, to watch the valet for, uh, for Lord Darlington in this, in this film, it's a very celebrated film. I'd be amazed if a lot of people didn't know it. 
The man is so selfless, he doesn't exist, except for his duties. His father's dying upstairs, and uh, he's busy serving dinner. He knows nothing, or claims to know nothing beyond the job itself. They ask him a question about world events. He said, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. And I think throughout this film, you can see where he doesn't. Hmm. He hasn't made it his business to know. It's his business to know the distance between forks. Mm -hmm. And I was watching this and getting increasingly upset. How could someone in the presence of Nazis, where Lord Darlington is, a, is in a sense, a sympathizer of Nazis and wants an accord with Hitler, similar to uh, the abdicated king. And it, it just rankled me that, that he could be that selfless, literally selfless. Then, oddly enough, only Jung would appreciate this, I think, a friend of mine, hearing that I, that I had seen the film and found it repugnant, gave me a, a book, I Was Hitler's Maid, Paul Fuller. And I, I read this, and it was lurid, and uh, there was big controversy about whether it's real or fabricated. It didn't matter to me, uh, but she was just the opposite of selfless. In fact, without her in it, there wouldn't be a book. Uh, but she had very little to say about anyone but the most lurid details of, of the Hitler period. It got me interested. And from these just these sources, I became fascinated by decisions that people on the sidelines of history make when faced with obvious evil and what might have occurred if they thought, felt, and acted differently. What if what if, what if uh, the valet to Lord Darlington actually did venture an opinion? Uh, to me, it probably would have made no difference, and he might have gotten fired because he, he had no, no street smarts, if you'll call it that. I wanted to create a character in, in Hitler's valet. I said, well, you know, who, who better to write about than Hitler's actual valet? But what do I do with him? And I had to I, I, I had to make him both believable, initially not selfless, but so naive that he wouldn't assert himself or even think in terms of assertion. He would assume he didn't know, assume that others know more than he does, and would defer to virtually everyone. I made him a completely brilliant but ignorant character, someone who, because he has an eidetic memory, uh, beyond photographic, because he has this memory, he knows everything, but understands nothing. Yeah, and, and it's, a, it's an amazing idea, and one that drew my attention right away, uh, just alone hearing that it's the discovered journals of Heinz Linge, uh, Valet to Adolf Hitler, and then reading a little bit into this and what he's doing and what he could, um, how he could potentially swing things one way or another was, I found fascinating. And I, I know I cannot wait to dive into this. What, now what about the magical realism? How does this work into it? Well, he utilizes the occult to achieve his ends. Once he decides as he grows, it's almost a coming-of-age novel, because he comes in as, as a waif, 
and goes out as a schemer, mm. uh, a brilliant schemer, because he, he sees what's going on around him and he's beginning to understand more and more the evils around him. And he realizes he's been called to serve in ways he never expected and barely understands, but is growing into that understanding. And what he knows is that Hitler and Himmler, his minion, uh, are heavily into the occult and really do believe that they can transcend the normal and get into the supernatural. They, they believe that they, they need a certain device. And my character as a medium, he doesn't know he's the medium. They believe he's the medium and they try, and they try to maneuver him into that position without him knowing it. Uh, he eventually learns that and uses that against them. What's interesting, and I think the, the, the magic realism comes in, when it turns out, I hate, to, I, I, I hate to do spoilers, but he eventually realizes that he's somewhat supernatural himself. He does have visions. He does have hallucinations. He does change personalities in the middle of a, let's call it a conversation. Now, initially, he does it without realizing it. Later, he uses these. He, in a sense, he pretends he's having them because now he's aware he has them. But he pretends he's having them, even though he isn't, in order to manipulate Hitler. That's, that's where the magic, magic comes in, is that it really does exist in him. He isn't merely he isn't merely acting out, pretending he's something he isn't. He actually realizes he is this. And the real issue becomes, and, and this is where the suspense comes in, can he control himself enough to use it as a device instead of instead of just being the victim of these visions and hallucinations? Can he actually someone asks him in the novel? Uh, do you participate? Do you actively participate in your own dreams? Are you sentient in your own dreams? And they keep asking him that, and he doesn't understand what they're asking. Eventually, he does. Mm -hmm. And once he does, he knows how to answer. Wow! And it's it's got quite the blend. I understand uh, mixing real events, real people with this uh, the fictional world that you created. What kind of research did you do to uh, to bring about this kind of realism? Well, I must have read maybe 50 books on Hitler, as, almost as many on those who served him, Himmler, Goering, Reinhard Heydrich, uh, Himmler's uh, wolfhound, all of the things connected with this, you know, being a historian, I, I know how to do this. I, I know how to research. I, can't, I, I just immersed myself in every single thing having to do with that period. You know, as I mentioned, uh, like Werner Herzog said, you have to know the context in which you become inventive. I can't deviate from something I don't know about. It's not a deviation, then it's ignorance. Mm -hmm. So I had to steep myself in, in, in all things Hitlerian in Nazi Germany in order to deviate from it. Um, I invented Hitler's dialogue 90%. He did what he did. See, that's where that the reality comes in, is that he did what he did. 
he did declare war on on Poland. That's not the magic realism. You know, you know, in magic realism websites, you say, well, what if what if Hitler decided to to attack uh, Ecuador? Well, he didn't attack Ecuador. I don't have him attacking Ecuador. I have him attacking Poland in 1939. The point is, his conversations about it are manufactured by me. His plan to send the Jews to Madagascar, that insane plan to do that, is a real thing. That's real. His discussion to my character about that is mine. So one of the things I find fascinating about this, too, is, is this is a debut novel for you. This is your very first fictional story. And and we discussed already the um, what your incentive was to, like, how you came up with the character. But what was the idea behind writing writing a book about this? How, how what, uh, what gave you that idea? Well, there was a, I think I may have omitted a third source. <laughs> I mentioned the remains of the day. I, I mentioned Kohler's book, I Was Hitler's Maid. I didn't mention one other, and that's Heinz Linge's own autobiography. He actually wrote an autobiography, well, as told to. So he didn't really write it. It was just tape-recorded conversations uh, that were concocted and compiled and, and, and written by somebody else. But that, that's not important. What's important is that when you read this book, and that's that's what inspired me eventually is the fact that he sounded absolutely like Stevens in Remains of the Day. Mm-hmm. You learn nothing about Linga in this book. You read the book from cover to cover, and it's a short one. It's like 200 pages, most of which are, are footnotes and notes of other kinds. When you get into the meat of it, you find that he he writes not about himself. He's writing about Hitler. He's writing about the people around him. Once in a while, he'd say, well, some so-and-so came up to me and asked me how the Fuhrer is doing today. <laughs> um, and I and I said, yeah, well, he's doing fine. Uh, thank you. That, to me, was, was the spur. You know, that spur dug into me, and I jumped. Hmm. It, had to, it had to be done. I, I had to do a real linga. I had to create one. If there wasn't a real one, I had to create one. Oh, my goodness. It became that, that uh, as I've heard other authors say, it became that itch that you had to scratch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, uh, yes. Yeah, if, if there wasn't a linga, uh, I'd have to create one. And uh, luckily there was one, but so I didn't have to invent a character. But everything else about him was invented except his existence this is just it's just so i i keep coming back i think i'm using the same words an awful lot but uh i I just keep thinking about how amazing this is that you've got these journals from this real historical figure and how much this inspires you And, and i think maybe that's what i'm finding amazing is you know what what you can come up with and where that inspiration comes from and this is certainly no exception uh to come up with a story like this, something that's going to be so immersive. And, uh, you know, some of your reviews uh, that have come out prior to the book, I mean, people are already comparing this to Man in the High Castle. I mean, this is quite high praise. Well, I, I, I appreciate that kind of praise, although it's, I would say that what I did deviated from Man in the High Castle in, in a few ways. 
he, he posited a completely different future. The same as the plot against America. That's a completely different future. It's, you know, what, what if Hitler won the war? Uh, these, these are extreme cases of what if. Mine, mine takes the actual historical events and posits a different reason for them. And that, that to me is a, is a very radical departure from the traditional, uh, the traditional what ifs. There's one other thing, and I, and I think that readers will find this out. I inject a lot of humor into this. Oddly enough, I don't mean in Jojo Rabbit humor uh, <laughs> or life is beautiful humor, but I, I do inject some wit into it to the extent that people find it witty, humor to the extent that people find it humorous. I even make Hitler humorous, but not in a way that that would glamorize him. Mm-hmm. It just makes him smarter. In fact, my character has a date with someone, a female in uh, a blind date. And he said one of the great marks of intelligence is humor. And anytime I want to show someone who's intelligent, it isn't a matter of knowledge. It's a matter of humor. Is the person witty? Does it show? And I try to infuse that in, into all of the dealings with people who would be humorous. Hitler was a genius, an evil genius, and, and he, would have, he would be humorous in certain circumstances. My character, because he, he is also a genius in his own way, is also humorous, not to Hitler, but to, to himself and to the reader. Some of his dates are witty and humorous because and I try to show their intelligence through wit, not through their their encyclopedic knowledge. So that differs from Man of the High Castle in, in that way also. A lot of these what ifs are not humorous at all. They're dead serious. Uh, and unfortunately, the dead part comes through a lot of times. I try to make it livelier. And you have to when you have when you when you have three volumes of journal entries. If you don't put humor in there, it's it's, it's going to be like like reading the phone book. <laughs> and I think that's smart. Yeah, it it certainly it it livens up the uh, the reading. It brings across the character to the reader so that they can enjoy what they're reading more. And uh, you know, and, and I'll be totally honest. When I finished Man of the High Castle. Uh, I read it for the first time two years ago, and I sat it down, leaned back in my chair, and thought, "What the hell just happened? I have I had no idea what in the world I had just experienced." And I actually had to start doing research into the novel and understand it. And then I understood it better and enjoyed it more. But it took me a little while. But it sounds like a fly on the wall is going to take me on this journey, and I I will know exactly where I am all all the way. It sounds like. I, I think you will. It has footnotes, as uh, as it would if it were a real a real set of journals. I mean, anyone who is translating a journal is is going to come across things that the reader might not know. And since it's ostensible nonfiction, it should look like nonfiction. And so I do have footnotes. I don't have an index. Uh, that that would be just gilding the lily. But I, I do provide footnotes, and I try to make well, I try to make this the stuff readable. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, otherwise it just gets bogged down. So, uh, but but a lot of these, a lot of these um, what ifs, 
are extreme. I, I, I tried to work within certain boundaries of what actually happened and then just provide a different reason for them. Very uh, cool. And a lot of people um, who have read it, you know, friends and family, I guess, that are reminded them of Confederacy of Dunces, which is hardly a serious book. Um, but I think what they were focusing on was the, uh, the injection of humor into something dead serious and the fact that it worked. I'd like to think that it worked and only the reader can tell me that. Mm -hmm. This episode is coming out on April 21st, but the book will have come out a few days before on the 16th. So it's available right now, everybody. And uh, this is volume one. I understand you've got uh, two more that are going to be coming out soon. Right. The first volume ends the, the day before, the night before Germany attacks Poland, Hitler attacks Poland. So it's like the 31st of uh, August. Volume two starts out with uh, September 1st. And I'm not positive. I'm, I'm editing volume two right now. And um, I'm trying to figure out where a good place to, to end it would be. I, I want to end on a cliffhanger. Uh, some are criticized a cliffhanger. Uh, I don't. I, I feel that um, people should want to know what happens. If it isn't cliffhanger, why would they want to know? They'd already know. Mm -hmm. So I don't know exactly where to stop it. Probably in the end of 1941, where Hitler takes over total command of the army. And then from 1941 to the end would be volume three. But that's not etched in kryptonite. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm, still, I'm still debating it with myself and my editor and all that. <laughs> yeah. Do you have uh, any plans for anything beyond uh, Heinz Linge? Uh, the only plans I have re are regarding it. I would love to have the incentive. And with me, the incentive would have to come from outside to convert this into a screenplay, to make it a miniseries. TV has taken over from movies where, where you know, Pixar and uh, all the special effects uh, have really taken over movies. Mm -hmm. And to get real drama, to get depth and not, and not squeezing a whole life in, in, into an hour and 45 minutes, you need, a, you need a miniseries, whether it's extended or limited. Uh, but TV is where, where it's at at this point. And my hope would that be the popularity of this would extend to the point where someone would see it and say, no, this would make a great miniseries. The challenge then would be to convert journal entries into something resembling something you could see on a screen. A challenge I would be more than happy to deal with. <laughs> I would say so. I mean, it would be, I'd, I'd gain from it, I'd learn from it, and I think I could do it. But it, I really need to have the, uh, the, the popularity of volume one, at least, would be season one to, to, to do that. So my vision sounds kind of limited to you, I know. I don't want to make a career out of Linga. And yet at the same time, I want to get the, the, the mileage out of that character that I possibly can. Let me mention one more thing, if that's all right with you. Sure. You asked me about the inspiration for this. And uh, 
I have to tell you that much of the inspiration, as I was watching all of these sources that uh, that prompted me, was me. I I put myself as an as an outsider. I've been an outsider all my life. You become kind of a spy. You're always out looking in, which means you're studying people. Um, and when you, they say that all writers eventually write about themselves, I put myself in great to a great extent into the Linga character. When people read this book, if they know me at all, they'll say, yeah, that sounds a lot like Marvin. He, it's amazing. Was he the valet? In a sense, I was. How can I write about somebody I never heard of until recently and and said nothing about himself if I don't create the character? Now, how do I create the character? By taking a lot from how I would be in that position. And that's how that's how it came about. I wanted I write about me in those circumstances. And that was a big challenge. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that's I think that I think that speaks for a lot of authors. I, I know several that I've spoken with and even for myself there's so many things that we're writing about that we have no frame of reference for or uh, something completely fantastical and so mm -hmm. of course, you know, we couldn't have lived this and yet just putting ourselves into that character and understanding the circumstances Somewhere in that ether, the words are coming to us through the character and telling us, and it's coming out through our fingers on the, the keyboard. And here's these words, and it's like, where did they come from? And it it's, sounds like a, a lot of that magic is what's happened uh, with you and uh, Mr. Linga. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I, I love what you said, because it, it did it did go to how I approach this um, I'm not, I'm not the Hitchcock of writers. I don't have elaborate storyboards and, 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 uh, and schematics. I mean, Hitchcock used to say that uh, he was finished before the movie started. His, his role was over. He had done the movie, and now it was all boredom making it. A lot of people do elaborate plotting and schematics and charts and diagrams and outlines. I had none of that. Uh, I guess it's called seat of the pants writing, but the excitement to me that I tried to put in is that I didn't know what I was going to say next. I put myself into the situation and improvised my way through mm -hmm. more of a John Cassavetes than a, than an Alfred Hitchcock. So a lot of this was extemporaneous. I put myself in that situation. And what would I say as Linga when confronted with Hitler saying something to me. And since I didn't know what I was going to say until I said it, I hope it had some liveliness to it, some unexpectedness to it. I didn't know no elaborate plotting at all. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It sounds incredible. And I, I know I, I am going to be clicking on there to get a pre-order. And of course, like I said, by the time this comes out, the book will be available. So I, I wish you all the luck with this. And, and, uh, I hope that when volume two and three comes out, that you'll please let us know so that we can, uh, do what we can to help share with, uh, with others as well when those are available. Oh, I appreciate that. You'll, you, you will know, 
I, I, I will let you know. <laughs> Wonderful. You know, no uncertain terms. Where can where can people find and follow you online? Well, the one of the best ways uh, would be to go to marvinwinitsky.com, all one word, M-A-R-V-I-N-W-I-N-I-T-S-K-Y.com. Another way would be author Marvin Winitsky. A third way would be M.L. Winitsky or Amazon. Um, and on Google, M.L. Winitsky would do. But the best way, the best way is author Marvin Winitsky or marvinwinitsky.com. Uh, that'll, that'll put them on the social media platforms that, that I have. And people who do, they, they will get a benefit if they join, if they invite and join the newsletter community that's on, online. I'll send them a free essay on Linga and, uh, you know, just uh, give them a heads up on, on who they're dealing with. That sounds incredible. You heard that there, everybody. And, uh, of course, we're going to make sure to have links for all of this in the show notes so you can click that link and you are right there on either his website or Amazon or his uh, social media. Mr. Winiski, thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been a real wonderful time getting to speak with you, uh, both before the show and, and, of course, during and hearing about this incredible book. And I, I really wish you all the best with this. Well, I thank you so much, Jason. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for me to hand the floor over to our guest, M.L. Winitsky, with his debut novel, A Fly on the Wall. 23 February 1935. It began with an unexplained, urgent 11th hour summons from Reichsfuhrer Himmler. Nursing the remnants of a bout of influenza, I sat for three hours in the sterile chancellery hallway of, mar of interminable marble and glass alongside a seemingly infinite row of rigid, ice-front, black-and-silver-clad male bodies, their utter silence punctuated by the occasional oily creak of gleaming boot leather. And there was the odor of sweat, but not the sort of sweat you could see the kind popping to the surface of faces, necks, armpits, and the smalls of backs, but the sweat of ambition, the kind you glimpse in a facial twitch, a fluttering of the eyes, a trembling of the lips, in the fixed stares of the desperate. I looked and acted no different from the rest, save that I'd been late, and yet I was I, who commanded to sit directly before the polished mahogany double doors to the Fuhrer's quarters, for how long I sat there, I have no knowledge, for I was benumbed with anxiety. So benumbed that without even noticing it, Bruckner was standing before me. At first, I failed to acknowledge him, for he was wearing, in place of his resplendent S.A. General's uniform, a brown double-breasted business suit, off-white dress shirt, striped tie, and a highly polished brogues, elegant but anonymous, save for a black eye patch. However, once my conscious mind placed him, I shot up from my chair at full attention and presented the Hitler salute, perhaps a bit more stridently than the occasion called for, the sound thundering through the hallway as if we were in a deep canyon. Bruckner returned my salute perfunctorily, curved his lips into something resembling a grin, and told me to stand at parade rest. Bruckner, a hair shorter than I and considerably thinner, 
scanned me up and down, swinging his head like a metronome on its side. Well then, let's see if we can expedite this so you can recuperate fully, yes? And without waiting for a response, he took me by the elbow and guided me to the massive doors. Go in, Linga. But Herr General, the others were ahead of me, I demurred. Bruckner chuckled mirthlessly. Ah, you are quite the sentimentalist, Linga. Perfect. But you needn't concern yourself. Just go in, he repeated. There are no others. There never were. I shut the door silently and passed through an uninhabited reception salon, crammed with a repulsive and ungainly furniture that was not intended for comfort or aesthetics, and into the Fuhrer's actual living room. It was approximately a thousand square feet in area, and unlike the salon, clearly designed for ease and even a certain exotic coziness despite its size. There must have been a colossal window, but it was completely shrouded by thick, heavy, dark burgundy draperies. The only light was provided by a small green glass-shaded desk lamp, which did less to illuminate than to throw sinister shadows throughout the vast space. As with the foyer, the living room seems also inhabited. To be frank, I had no idea what to do, for I also had no idea why I was summoned in the first place. As a consequence, I merely stood in the center of the room and tried to banish all thought from my mind with little success, because I'd learned long before that the less you know, the more you imagine. Almost hysterical with curiosity, I decided to keep occupied by wandering with apparent aimlessness over to peer through the draperies. I had just reached them when his voice emerged from behind me and I spun round. A welder I once worked with in my former life, who had lost several toes and one ear in the war, told me that in the face of danger, there are only three possible responses, fight, flee, or freeze. Fight, he said, was risky. Flight was reasonable if conditions permitted, but freeze was suicide. I froze. A voice is information like anything written down or seen so my memory needed no prompting to recognize his. But he was speaking to me in the sort of tone one assumes when having known a person for years. I saluted with panicked abandon and was about to shout Heil when the Fuhrer whispered, Linga, you look terrible. Are you ill? No, my Fuhrer, I lied. That is, I was laid up with the influenza for a time, but I am definitely on the mend. But my Fuhrer, I... He quickly raised his index finger to his lips. No ceremony, Linga, he said. You know, I had colored a vision as I lay sleepless in my bed of a man quite uncommon, not truly extraordinary, mind you, but possessed of the singular ability to elicit the extraordinary from those capable of it. Do you follow me? I was both transfixed and flummoxed. I could feel drops of sweat cascading down my armpits and back. I, I, I am afraid I do not, my Fuhrer. His little mustache rose as he smiled, something I had never seen before. Naturally, he said, mirthfully, this must appear to you to be quite irrational, for you have to this point dealt only with the rational, the humdrum, the ordinary. It is to be expected, but there's quite another reality. I have always known this, a reality that only the exceptional can perceive and make manifest, and we will make it known to each other.
There was silence, save the pounding of blood in my ears. I was confounded. Lack of formal schooling aside, I understood nothing of his monologue. But that did not appear to matter, for he merely gazed down at the floor, then began pacing round the room, seemingly oblivious to my presence, head bent, hands clasped behind his back like an ice skater. My own back felt like a waterfall. I was close to panic. Should I speak? Was he waiting for a response? I had no way of knowing, or telling, or how perilous it would be in my breaking the silence. After his third circuit, he turned and moved towards me, stopping close enough for me to smell his breath. It was unutterably foul. Are you a spiritual man, Linga? He asked, almost in a whisper. You mean, am I religious, Mathieu? I queried back. Not necessarily, but do you believe in fortune? Once I was reasonably certain that I was not to be subjected to a reprimand over something I knew not what, I answered, I, I am standing before you now, my Fuhrer. Is that not fortune? No, Linga, he replied. That is destiny, and you will be the final link in the chain that binds me to it. I was utterly out of my depth, and so I remained silent as he turned round as if to walk away, but suddenly turned back, came up to me, glanced at me for a moment, then reached up and grabbed me tightly by the shoulders, his eyes piercing through me like swords. Don't speak, Linger. The expression of mystification on your face is sufficiently eloquent. He released his hands and stepped back, then, as if weighted down with a terrible burden of which he could not speak, moved slowly to his desk and eased himself into his chair. Linga, he began, his voice exhibiting a strength I had not expected. Those officers lining the hallway outside are but a facade, a stage set, if you will a ruse to convince those who surround me that I was seeking merely one more valet. Of course, there is some truth to that, for I learned long ago that for a lie to succeed, not unlike bread, one must surround it with a crust of truth. For reasons that baffle me still, instinct overrode judgment, and I blurted out, but my Fuhrer, I, I was not born, educated, or trained to personal service. I am an ignorant laborer, of course, I knew I didn't sound like one, though in my untutored brain, the how was conveniently separated from the what. The Fuhrer smiled indulgently, his hands splayed, palms down on his desk. I expected that very reaction. In my position, Linga, I must see beyond the obvious and consider matters that elude others, even those most highly placed. It is only natural for you to wonder why I raised you above all the others whom you consider far more qualified. I will disabuse you of this at once. You come with the highest recommendations from men whose knowledge of certain matters is both unique and essential to my purpose. I, of course, had to witness this for myself, and I tell you that I concur completely. If, if you say so, my Fuhrer, I couldn't imagine that he was unable to see me sweating and shaking, but if he did, he gave no sign. He eased himself up and came toward me again, then stopped. He was looking at me and yet looking past me, a thing difficult to describe but easily seen. He was completely silent, not even the sound of breathing, and all I could hear was my racing pulse. Then he spoke, almost in a whisper, to that space beyond me. Linga, 
Do you believe that there is genius among the animal kingdom? I, I have no idea, Mathura. I, for one, cannot believe it because he would not have survived. And even among the early humans, any sign of deviance would have meant death or banishment. Banishment, even worse than death for such creatures, don't you agree? Not even here now, in this mere sand grain of in this vast ocean of time, could someone with my unique gifts survive, much less savor of the Aryan race, who is poised to place Germany at the very center of Western civilization. And yet I have survived and will continue to do so. Of this I'm convinced. However, even I cannot accomplish this alone. And so you have become quite irreplaceable. Stunned, I uttered, but, but my Fuhrer, how can I of all people be irreplaceable? He nodded knowingly. There is much I cannot divulge to you now, he replied. Perhaps one day. Then his voice faded to a murmur, then gained volume as he said, there is a story, perhaps apocryphal, of a time when Henry Ford, the automobile genius, was walking down a hallway with his subordinate, and he stopped to ask him what time it was. And the subordinate replied, what time do you want it to be, Mr. Ford? I am no less beset by such psychophancy, I'm afraid. The problem, Linga, is that a man in my position hears only what those round him thinks he wishes to hear. It must have been because of the panic I could not express, for again, curiosity trumped prudence. But my Fuhrer, I asked, what if they were to tell you what you didn't want to hear? He nodded slyly and his lips curved into a mischievous grin. You must never lose that sense of humor, Linga. It is a most beguiling quality. He returned to his desk. In any event, you will assume the duties of a personal valet. Realize that there will be many who will make demands on you, including my inner circle and visiting dignitaries, but especially Krauss, my ostensible chief valet, an efficient but unpleasant fellow. And for appearances, you must be seen to comply. But never forget, Linga, that there is only one to whom you answer. And when all are gone from my sight and your mundane duties and attendant abuses are done, I will increasingly often call for you, and you will undertake your destined role. Every part of me was screaming for an explanation of that role, but I said nothing. Frau Linga, from fear or inclination, could not express any human warmth or feeling towards me, but she had not born an idiot. I knew to keep silent, but from that moment, if not before, my previous existence ended. I was reborn and nothing could ever be the same. That is, assuming it ever was. That was M.L. Winitsky reading a sample chapter from his debut novel, A Fly on the Wall. It's full of suspense, and oh my goodness, that book has got me hooked. I've already got a copy in my cart right now on Amazon, don't forget to click the links in the show notes so you can do the same and follow Mr. Winitsky online. There's also links for our friends and sponsors alike. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out next time when we come back with an all-new author, a new book, and a brand new sample chapter. Take care, everybody. We'll see you again real, real soon. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.